0: John Blanchard was teaching us, and he made this statement. He said, When we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, think about how His will is done in heaven immediately, wholeheartedly, and cheerfully. Do you think the angels and the redeemed saints around heaven go, Really? Or, God, when it's a good time, when it's convenient, uh, I'll do that, but it's willingly. It's immediately and it's cheerfully done. Oh, when we pray that prayer, would that be a part of our lives? That we want to see his will done here as it is there. Let's go to him and pray in that way now. Father, we pray thy will be done on earth here in our midst as it is in heaven. And what is your will? Your will is that your perfect peace would reign. That your kingdom would expand and come. That the name of Christ would be lifted up. That your children, redeemed by the blood of your son in his precious name, would live in a way that reflects you in worship and in obedience. That they would come and be good stewards of this gorgeous creation that you've given to us. That we would do all things with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, that we would love you in that way passionately in our lives. Father, I pray that for myself, that you'd fill me afresh and anew today to do that. That you'd fill each of us in that same way. For God, day by day and moment by moment, we forget it. And we need your spirit to fill us So, God, with that refreshing wind of your spirit blowing in now to us, would we be able uh, to proclaim your word boldly in this world? Would we be a church that stands firm on what we believe, on the truth of the gospel, uh, on the beauty of who Christ is, and in incredible humility, go out and serve and incarnate to live out the reality of the gospel where you've called us to be? Father, would we use all of our resources to that end Father, would we do everything that it would be informed by you that it would be bathed in prayer that it would be empowered by your spirit? Father, keep us as a church, keep us as individuals from going out and doing things that would not bring you honor or glory but, but would you would release us in a powerful way to do great things for you, Father, there are many things going on in the lives of our church there are, There are sickness and illness. There are difficulties in marriages. There there are tough things. I pray that your spirit uh, would be poured out there, that you would powerfully minister, and that the body of Christ would be rallied around those situations, and that we would care. Be your arms and your feet. Father, we thank you for the many joys that we experience uh, in our church as well, of friendships and of new birth, uh, of great things going on, of seeing you do many things in and through our lives, and we thank you for that. Father, we pray for our friends and those whom we don't even know, brothers and sisters around the world ministering in your name. Would you strengthen them and embolden them today to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? And would they see the fruit of their labors? Father, would many come to faith? And would we one day gather with them and all the saints around you in heaven itself and celebrate? Father, we praise you and we thank you. We give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so this morning we are going to pick up sort of as a second part uh, of looking at what does it mean for us to stand at the crossroads or stand at the paths and to ask of the Lord which way basically should we go. Uh, Lord, where do you want us to go? What are the ancient paths? What are the ways that you would direct us in? And then to listen from the Lord and to say, okay, Lord, we believe this is what we're hearing. This is what we're seeing within your word. And we want to go along that path. We want to follow that way because you say in your word, we're going to read here, Jeremiah six sixteen and 17 real quickly. It says this, thus says the Lord. Now, just as an aside, I'm going to ask you a quick question. This is a real easy one. Who is speaking? Thus says the Lord. Okay. This isn't anybody else. This isn't a king. This isn't some servant. This isn't anybody else. This is the Lord, God of all. This is the God who created us, who rules over us. So when he speaks, we should listen. So this is what the Lord is saying. Stand by the roads and look. Be observant. See what the needs are. See where you're going. See what's happening around you. Observe. Go out. And there's a word used in biblical terms. It's called exegeting the scripture. You exegete. You look in and you find out what the words and the scripture means. And then you tell it. He's basically saying exegete your life and exegete your world. Go out and know what's going on. And then ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Say, Lord, I want to be able to navigate this world well. And I want to, as I go along the way, to make sure that what I'm doing uh, lines up with your desires. And so, God, would you show me what those ways are? Would you point me in the right paths? Now, what does that... It it indicates that there are lots of different paths. Not just one. Because he's saying, you look around and there's lots of different paths. But you ask for the right one, the old way, uh, the one that the Lord has. Go in that way. Walk in it, and guess what you're going to find at the end of the day? And you'll find rest for your souls. Now, my seminary professors would be screaming right now that you should just read scripture and not make little annotated comments, so I'm breaking form just a little bit. But to help us bring this out, so walk in it. Don't just look and observe and go, oh, that looks like a good way. But walk in the way that's there, and you will find rest for your soul. Oh, what does that indicate if you go on a different path? You're not going to find rest. You're going to be burdened. You're going to be worn out. You're going to be weary. And if you're burdened, worn out, and weary, maybe the question should be in your life, not, God, why am I so burned out, weary, and all overwhelmed by this, but, God, I'm on the wrong path. I must be on the wrong path. Because I don't have rest for my soul. And if I don't have rest for my soul, that must mean I'm not walking on the path that you've designed for me. So, Lord, would you get me on that path? Would you let me go there and find rest? And he says, he'll let you find rest. He said, but here's the problem with us as humans. But they said, we'll not walk in it. We won't do it. We have a better idea. We're so, hmm, what's a good word, arrogant, prideful. We think that our way is the best way, but we won't go in it. He says, but you see, I know that about you, so I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. Pay attention. Go this way. Pastors, elders, friends children guess what your parents are set in those places above you to guide and direct your lives parents you realize that's part of your role in your children's lives is to be that is to be a watchman over them helping guide and direct them in the way why so that they would find what rest okay parents grandparents guess what your role is in the lives of your children and your grandchildren to help be watchmen I'll point them along the way. And so ultimately, it seems that the goal of a pastor, the goal of elders, the goal of parents, grandparents, all of these things, the goal of all these is what? To lead us to eternal rest. But look again. But we pay no attention to it. Golly. Isn't that crazy? If you were told, Hey, if you follow this path, you'll go right down this way and then you're going to get to a little fork in the road and you're going to veer to the right on the fork of the road and then you're going to go down a little hill and then you're going to go left a little ways and at the end of that, you're going to find the most incredible view of the ocean that you've ever seen in your life. And there is going to be a spring of eternal water flowing for you and you'll never thirst again and it's going to be the best place in the world for you to go. And you head down the path. But you're left at the fork in the road. You go someplace else. We would say, we wouldn't do that. But God does that. We do that with God all the time. You want to get here? Do you want to find rest? Follow me. Trust me in this way. Let's go this way together. And so what we're going to talk about today are some of the values of what we believe is that ancient way. Some of the values, some of the things, the characteristics, whatever word you want to use in that. To look and say, here is how we perceive the path. These are some of the the trail markers. These are some of the billboard signs along the way. These are some of the things that we're going to see and that are going to be part of our characteristics as we walk along this way. And all the things that we're going to talk about today are driven by Scripture. And you're going to hear me give you Scripture after Scripture of saying, this is where this comes from. Because I want you to see something. Scripture has to drive everything that we do. And so as a church, what the elders have done and leadership of the church has done is we've come together and we've said, okay, Lord, where do you want us to go? What does that path to rest look like? How do we get to that rest? And how, as we go along the way, how do we invite more and more people to come and to join us on this walk and see more and more people come and join us on this walk towards rest? How many of you all know, friends and neighbors in your life, family members who, if you offered them the opportunity for absolute, eternal rest, would go, oh, that sounds so good. Anybody know folks like that? Three of you? Let's try the four. Okay, good. Do you know people who are desperate for rest? Do you realize you have the answer for them? And you have the layout and the map for them to get there? Would it be unloving if if I was given... By a doctor who came from somewhere in the jungles of South America. And he found the one cure for every kind of cancer in the world. But he said there's only one pill for that cancer. And I had that. And I went to someone who had cancer. And I said to them, I have this pill. And it's the only way that your cancer will be fully cured. And I promise it will never come back if you take this pill. But you can't take any other pill. It's just this pill. Am I showing them love? Or am I being closed-minded? Which is it? I'm showing them love. But they would go, but Bill, it's in a pluralistic world. I can choose any kind of remedy I want for cancer, can't I? Oh, I said, absolutely. You can choose anything you want for cancer. But this is the only one that is going to cure you. What if they rejected it? What do you think I would say to him if I just loved him? Hey, wait a second. You don't understand what I was trying to tell you. This is the only cure. And I would keep telling him about it and keep telling him about it. Guess what? You have the roadmap to eternal rest and peace. And we have a world that's out there looking for rest and peace, looking for a way to answer the most profound questions of our age and the most profound questions that humanity has wrestled with. And we in the church have the answers and the roadmap to that. And the question is going to be, Do you believe it, and will you get on board and start going in that direction and inviting everybody that you know and all those that you see and all those that you come into contact with where you work, live, and play, will you go and say to them, hey, if you want to find rest for your souls, it's not going to be there. How many of you over the last six years have found absolute rest in your occupations? Anybody find absolute rest in your portfolio over the last few years? Boy, I don't have much of a portfolio, but what little I did... I went, ooh, I just stopped looking. There's no rest in that. God's saying, I'll give you ultimate rest. Here are some of the things that you need to believe, though, in order to find that ultimate rest. There's only one authority in, uh, of, of all else, and that's the word of God. Our primary and ultimate value in this church and how we are informed about everything else is by the scripture, the word of God, that we believe it to be God's infallible word. We printed it, it's up here. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our value says this, we believe that the Bible is complete and fully inspired by God. It contains all truth about God, salvation, faith, and life. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can truly be in relationship with God. What are we saying about the word of God? We hold it to be incredibly high. We hold it to be his word. And what does that mean? It means we subordinate everything else to it. You realize that? That because of our view of scripture, everything in our lives is impacted One of the things that I find out in ministry and just in life in general is we don't, we're not really good at relationships. You know that? You guys stink at them. And so do I. Because here's what I've found out about relationships. We never seem to mature, many of us never seem to mature past middle school. Well, you know, she doesn't like you very much. He doesn't like you very much. Or, hey, you know, somebody hurt, someone came to me and told me that you hurt their feelings. And I'd like you to go deal with that. Oh, well, I didn't hear that from them. Oh, well, you see, we can't talk directly. And so how would a high view of God's word impact our relationships of confrontation and conflict resolution? Would it? Matthew 18 would say, if you have something against me, guess who you need to come and talk to? If I have something against you, guess what I need to do? go to my brother or my sister. Oh, but that's really difficult. Is it easy to go and confront somebody? Yeah, no. You guys are not checking out, but I'm going to tell you this, I didn't mean you're not all bad at relationships, okay? I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but most of you are. And I'm leading it in that way. I'm not good at it. I'm not good at, at one-on-one confrontation. People think I am, but I'm not. Cuz it's difficult. But if we hold a high view of Scripture, what does that demand from me? The demands if Jim and I have something between us. I'm going to go to Jim. And I'm going to approach Jim in love. And I'm going to say, hey, brother, I want to be made right with you. I'm not going to talk to Zach about it. I'm not going to have Zach go to Jim for me. I'm going to go to Jim. And if Jim and I can't get it resolved, guess what I'm going to do with Zach? I'm going to go, Zach, I want to be made right with my brother. And Scripture says that I need to bring another witness. And so would you go with me so that we can be made right together? You know what that's driven by? Scripture. A high view of Scripture. In our church, you know why we have elders? You know why we have deacons? Because Scripture says we should have elders and deacons. And that the elders should shepherd. And the deacons should serve. And that we should all come together as men. And there are qualities and characteristics that we're highlighting and raising up within them to say, This is what we want. This is what we have. You want to know why we worship in the way that we worship? Because Scripture says we should worship in particular ways. You know why we pray and sing songs of joy to God and confess our sins? Because scripture indicates that we should be doing those things. Because scripture is our high authority on those things. There are denominations within our country and around the world that have changed their views of scripture. Within their documents, so I'm not reading anything that's not published. Our view of scripture from what we call the Westminster Confession of Faith states this. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received. Why? Because it is the Word of God. When I read Scripture to you, I often end, and I should end every time, this is the very Word of God. Because what I'm saying to you is this isn't Bill McCutcheon's interpretation of the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Now... There's a mainline denomination that in 1967 changed its confessions and went away from one confession in Westminster to a book of confessions. And in its book of confessions is this confession of 1967. And it says this, The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sounds good so far, right? Are nevertheless the words of men, conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literacy fashions of, places, of the places and times in which they were written. And later it says that within the scriptures, the word of God is contained. Why is it dangerous to say that it contains the word of God and isn't the word of God? Because that means it also contains things that may not be the word of God. And then it becomes up to me to discern what's the word of God and what's not the word of God and what I'll obey and what I won't obey. And what if I had that choice, guess which one I would toss out immediately? Matthew 18. I wouldn't want to talk to you face to face. It's just easier not to. I wouldn't want to have elders because that means I'd have to submit to those guys. And I would just get rid of those. I would get rid of the hard parts of Scripture. But Scripture is like any ecosystem, any ecosystem. I was talking to one of my guys we were looking at and they are studying about ecosystems and how out west they got rid of all the wolves for a while. And people went, we don't like wolves and you have to get rid of wolves. And guess what they found out when you got rid of a top-level predator within an ecosystem? It messed up the entire ecosystem. Guess what? We approach Scripture that way. We like to get rid of some of the difficult things in Scripture. We like to get rid of the things that talk about suffering and sin and hell and the fall and God's sovereignty and God's hand over all things. We like to get rid of those things because they're difficult. But guess what happens if you rip those things out of Scripture? You destroy the entire ecosystem of all of Scripture. And so what we want to do here and what I want you to hear here is that we're going to raise high the bar of Scripture and wrestle together with these things. And submit ourselves to it. Does that make sense? Now that's not a standard practice in many churches. But that's one that we hold here. Because we believe that the only way to know the path that's going to lead us into rest. And lead us into righteousness. Is to go to the one who wrote the word and wrote the book on how to get there. So the beginning of our is the truth of the word of God. Is high for us, that, all, that scripture informs all of our decisions as a church and individual members. The second thing we say is a value is missional living. Missional living, what do you think missional living talks about? Well, it basically means this we live with a mission, we live on a mission, we live with a purpose. Why were you created? I was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do I glorify God? What is my mission? What's my purpose in life? Oh, it's to honor, worship Him, and obey Him, and to do as He did. We talked about in Sunday school that Christ came into the world to do what? Save sinners. To offer His life as a ransom. And therefore, we, in a similar way, should have the same mission as Christ. That we should live in that way. Matthew five thirteen through 16 says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way that people see Jesus. I'm going to confess something to you. There are times when it's hard for me to say to somebody, this is who I am and this is what I do and that I'm a Christian. And you may think, gosh, coming from a pastor, wow, can I really trust this guy? Well, I just want you to know it's a struggle at times. I joke with you, but it's an honest struggle. When I get invited to play golf with guys that I don't know, and normally you get talking around the tee boxes. So, what do you do? Well, I I work for Hargray. What do you do? I own a restaurant. Well, what do you do? I I work for development with Equestrians. There. What do you do? I'm a pastor. I'm sorry, I cussed earlier. I apologize about that. It's okay. I'm just a pastor. It doesn't mean, and I become, and it's amazing how things change oftentimes. And so what I brought into was a lie that said, maybe if I just act more like the world and I don't really tell them what I do, then they'll like me more and I'll be engaged. I'll get invited back and it'll be more fun. I lost my saltiness. I didn't shine a light, but instead to say, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know. Do you do that in your lives? Christ is saying, do you live intentionally in such a way that the world will see that you love them and you're engaged in them? See, there was a book I read many years ago called Chameleon Christianity. And it says there's a danger within the church that the church falls between two uh, equally dangerous polars one is to become tribal and the other is to become chameleon the tribal church basically says this we speak our tribal church christian language we listen to our tribal radio stations we put our tribal stamp of a nice little fish uh, on all of our tribal documents and on our business cards and we run tribal businesses and we hang out with other people who have the tribal codes i remember i won't say it because some of my fraternity brothers would get mad but if you wanted to come into our meeting there was a certain knock And it was a certain call sign, and it was a counter call sign, and then you were welcomed in with a certain little handshake, and you got to go into the K.A. house. We treat church like that a lot. We speak in language that no one else understands. We use terms that nobody outside of the church would ever get. And so we become this tribe. And what a tribe does is it likes to protect its own. The illustration given was that of a muskox. I'm not a muskox expert, so I just have to trust this guy. He says, when muskoxes get uh, threatened, guess what they do? They put their young and the wounded in the center, and the big muskox point their heads face out. And I've seen a muskox, and that'd be a scary thing, because they want to be impenetrable. And guess what we do in the church so often? All right, women, children, ministries, in here, insulary. So we don't get that dirty, mean world out there to affect you. We don't want anything to get you, so we're going to create all of our parks and rec ministries. We're going to create all of these things, and we're going to do everything here so that nothing bad out there will get you, and everyone else protects. Now, there is a sense in which we're to protect our children and protect ourselves from the influences of the world, but we're never to lose our saltiness and light and mission into the world. So we have to find out a balance. Some churches ran this way, and they went, oh, well, we're not going to be tribes. We don't like those tribal folks, so we're going to be chameleons. We're going to be everything and all things to all people. We're going to look like the world. We're going to sound like the world. We're going to get rid of everything that traps and even uh, smells of, uh, of, excuse me, we're going to get rid of everything that looks like the church, smells of the church, sounds like the church. We're going to get rid of it all. We don't want you to even know that we're Christians or we're a church. Hmm. Chameleon? Tribe? Or should it just be that we're missional? That we hold the values that we hold, but we, like Paul, say that I will be all things to all people. I, I will I will be a Gentile. To those who are Gentiles, and I'll understand their culture, and I will engage them in such a way. I will be a Jew to Jews, so that I can understand their culture, so that I can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that engages their hearts. I will understand the youth culture, and I will know how to get into the youth culture. I'll understand how to get into wealth. I will understand how to get into poverty. I will understand how to get into African American neighborhoods, and I'll understand how to get into white neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods. I'm going to do as a church and as individuals everything I can possibly do to be fully informed by the Scripture, so that I can go out into the world on a mission to see. See folks come to faith in Christ. You do know that's the only mission of the church. It's not just to get you to heaven comfortably. My role as a pastor, I was told one time, is this. is to comfort those who are uncomforted. Or to comfort those who are discomforted. And discomfort those who are comfortable. And so our mission is to go out. And to reach lost people. And here's a great way to do that. How many of you all live somewhere? (laughs) Some of you don't live anywhere. Okay. Um, most of you live somewhere. Is there anybody who lives near you? Do, the, do you all have neighbors? Yay, good. Well, here's what I'd like us to do. As part of our missional living thoughts and intentions, we want to develop this mindset within our church. That where you live, where you, where you are in your apartment complex, your, your plantation, your neighborhood, whatever it is, that you view that as your parish. And that you are the parish priest, the parish pastor there. And that you get to know, you exegete the needs of your neighbors. So that you can then go out and minister to them. That they find your place, your home as a sanctuary for them. That they hear the gospel, they see it lived out. Do you think they're going to see it lived out perfectly? No, but you want to hide those bad things, right? Maybe what the world needs to see is the fact that I really struggle to be a dad and a husband sometimes. And I blow it because they need to relate that Christians aren't perfect people, but they're people who are redeemed. And so you go out and you do those things and it gets kind of messy, doesn't it? Because guess who you're inviting in? People who don't agree with your same value systems. Lisa and I lived in a neighborhood and I've shared this with you before. And it was the most fun neighborhood we've ever lived in in our life. We had people all around us who were different lifestyles and church backgrounds and atheists and this, that, and the other. And we wanted to develop this kind of ministry, and we would invite them into our home. And we can't have smoking in our house because of asthma and allergies. But we put ashtrays out on the back because if I've got a person who comes and doesn't do this and doesn't I'm not going to tell them, well, you know, we Christians, we don't do that stuff. And so they came and we welcomed into our home and we had a neighbor, you remember this, our neighbors next door. He was an engineer, she was boarded like on three different kinds of medical boards. She was, they were so brilliant, they were uh, lapsed Catholics, they weren't church. And they came into our house for dinner and they sat down and they plopped a big bottle of red wine. And we didn't drink red wine at the time. And we just sat there and we're like, okay, this is okay, here we go. And we sat down at our dinner table and you know what, she looked at me and she goes, so. That's usually not a good way to, be, you know you're in trouble. So. You're a pastor, right? Yes, I am. Presbyterian pastor? Yes, I am. So, you believe that abortion's wrong and homosexuality's wrong, don't you? Pass the peas? <laughs> that was our entrance conversation. And it led to some of the most stimulating conversations we ever had. And as we look back at Memphis, The couple of families that we still keep in touch with, at least a few of them, were non-churched, still. We liked hanging out with lost people. It was a lot of fun. You church people drive me nuts, and I know I drive you nuts. (laughs) We drive each other nuts. We argue about the wrong things. We get upset about the wrong things. You know, we need to get the carpets fixed and we're going to probably get that fixed because the children are fascinated by this little place in the carpet up here that they can pull up and down. But I'm not going to have an argument with you about what kind of carpet. And we're not going to a congregational vote about what kind of carpet we're going to get. Okay? We argue about things like that. When we should be spending our energy about how can we take the resources of this church and reach lost people better? How can we take those schools that are just across our street, filled with kids who don't know the Lord, how can we minister more effectively there? Before we build another building uh, on this site or do anything else, we ask the question, will this building further the mission of our church to reach lost people? And if it won't, we're not going to build it. We're not going to do it. Does that make sense? Okay? So, missional living. It it gets messy. Lisa was living in Midtown Exciting. Was it messy? Oh, yeah. Had a person show up in my house for Easter. Easter. She was an artist. She was a non-believer, an atheist, but she was coming to our house for Easter, uh, for brunch on Easter. She was invited by one of our young women who had this idea of missional mindset. And this young woman brought a dozen eggs for our Easter egg hunt. And she was an artist at the art school there in Memphis. Was like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And I looked at the eggs and it said, religion is the opiate of the people. <laughs> Next, um, Jesus is the Antichrist. Okay. <laughs> well, that was her worldview. But they were so intricately and delicately taken care of. And you know what the church people in our group said about those eggs? You're not going to use those eggs, are you? I said, well, the last time I checked, 18-month-olds can't read. And if we we want to lose this young woman forever, tell her that you're not going to use her eggs. And her friend who showed up with her walked up the front steps of my house with a fifth of Jack Daniels. And he finally looked at the girl that he was bringing him, and he said, now whose house is this? And she said, it's my pastor's. He went, oh, crud, and shoved it in the box hedge. He's like, I can't come, but that's who he was. And you know the great thing about those two people who came to my house that day? Over the course of time of being engaged in relationships with Christians, both of them gave their lives to the Lord. If I told him that you shouldn't drink hard liquor and that you can't have eggs like that, do you think they would have ever listened to anything else I said to him? It gets messy, folks. And we got accused of being soft on the gospel. And so will you, if you go try to reach lost people, missionally speaking. So, we hold the authority of God's word very high. We hold missional living high. And we say that within that missional living, you know what's going to be the attribute that people are going to have to know us by more than any other attribute? It's love. And he answered... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and you and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We don't have time to fully get into this, but it's basically saying this. We first love God, and by being so overwhelmed by God, it motivates us. John goes in to write that in 1 John chapter 4, where he says, For the love of God motivates us to go out and to love one another, and that love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4. that It says that we love God primarily, and through the love of God, who has poured his love into us, I can go out and love other people, people who may reject me, people who are difficult to love. Some of you may still use this language, and I hope that you will get it out of your vocabulary after today, EGRs. Anybody know what EGR stands for? Extra grace required. Only a person who thinks that they don't require much grace can make that statement about another person. But the love of God, which humbles us in Christ Jesus, allows us to go love unlovable and unlovely people. With the beauty of the love of Christ Jesus. And want to see them transformed. And we can love ourselves in there. Some of you don't have much of a love for yourself. And you need to love yourself in a way that's healthy. To realize that God made you beautiful. Young women. God made you beautiful. Don't listen to our culture of what it says about you. But to love one another well. In that way. That we go out and love. I hope our church is known. Not just as a friendly church. But as a loving church. In this community. Because guess what that means? Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm going to mess up in your life. I already have, I believe. I've been told that on several occasions. And I've received emails and phone calls. And been confronted. uh, And been told that I've messed up in your lives. Guess what? I'm, I'm going to make you this promise going forward. You want to know what my promise is? I will continue to mess up in your life. But I hope that what we will establish between one another. Is a loving relationship. Where I can come to you and say, I'm sorry I messed up but I hope you know that I loved you. I hope that you know that I do love you and I want to be reconciled to you, motivated out of that love for God in that way. So we're going to be a loving. We're going to have what? We're going to have the word of God that's going to direct our missional living, that we're going to be known by love, that we're going to live in community. We've got to wrap up. We're going long. Sorry, guys. And we're going to have to have a community filled with joy. Living in community means this. In Acts, it says that they live together, breaking bread, being around one another. In the New Testament, there's something like 59 one another verses. You do know that when Christ came and saved you, you were united to Christ. But guess who else you were united with? Let me give you a little hint. Look left everyone look left look right you're united in Christ with those people That means you're stuck with them. you got to live with them. you got to figure it out. And the easiest thing for you to do is to go, I'm going to find another church because it's got to get a little bit difficult here. I'm going to go break fellowship and I'm going to go there. But instead, it's to, to love one another in community and figure it out in community. That means we need to eat together, go bowling like last week together. We're going to go to the beach together sometimes. We're going to gather together here. I played pool with a few guys this week to develop community. We need to live together. And then guess what? When you live together well, then when you get to invite your non-believing friend missionally in, you have what's called a Matthew's party. When Matthew uh, came, he invited all the tax gatherers, all his ex-friends, uh, and all those guys who he used to hang out with. Guess what? He invited them to a party. And who was at the party? Jesus and all his new friends who were in the body of Christ. I hope that our neighborhoods are filled with Matthew parties where you're inviting your non-church friends to hang out with your church friends. But the only way that's ever going to happen is you've got to like your church friends. And you want to have your non-church friends around them. And trust that it's going to be a place where the gospel is shared in love. And then finally this, live in joy. Let's not, if we ever change our logo, I hope that Eeyore isn't on it. Okay? Well, how's the day going? Well, it's pretty good so far, but I think it's going to rain later. Well, you know. But live with joy. For the joy of the Lord is my strength. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. 2 Corinthians 7.4. I hope that we're overflowing with joy. And to that end, you will be joyful that the sermon is coming to a close. And that you will be able to go, those of you Atlanta Falcons fans, to go uh, and to see the game here in a few minutes. And the rest of you to go and hopefully chew on some of these things today. Consider and ask, "Is this where I want to go?" Someone once said about his church I think it was Rick Warren "This is a church for uh, anyone, but it may not be a church for everyone." What he meant by that, and what I mean by that, is we want you to know who we are, and I hope that you'll join with us. And I hope that you'll get excited about that. and I hope that you'll go out into the world with us, and you'll bring friends in to be with us and come with that, but if you're not, it's OK. That's okay. We're not going to fight and butt heads over it. All right? But we're going to love one another well in the midst of it for the peace and the purity of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have a love that will not let us go. Thank you that you pursue us with incredible passion, that you desire us, you want to be with us. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for this church. Thank you for its mess-ups and for its uh, great strengths, successes and failures. And I pray that we would be a church that leads people to rest in you. Father, thank you that you love us. And we praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Before we end, I wanted to say thanks real quick. Howard Jackson, thank you for playing with us today as our guest.